kind of a press agent are you? How do they have to send me some green kid fresh out of NYU? Who in hell are you? I'm Ann Wells, and I... Look, I'm tired and I'm busy. What do you want? Um, Mr. Bellamy sent some contracts for you to sign. You. Out. Come on. Give me a fountain pen. And not one of those lousy ballpoints. Come on, come on. Sit down. You're making me nervous. That, that girl who's singing out there, she's very good, isn't she? Yeah. Hey, how do you think the kid's song works in a new spot? Great, huh? The song goes. What? You heard me. The song goes, and the kid with it. Oh, Helen, come on. Neely O'Hara can't hurt you. Uh, you bet your ass she can't, because she isn't going to get the chance. The only hit that comes out of a Helen Lawson show is Helen Lawson. And that's me, baby, remember? Welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is Jim. And now, here he is, the social media consultant for J.K. Rowling, Teal. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, is this, uh, are you weighing from one controversy to another? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I won't go into the details on that because I don't know all the details. I just know that uh, J.K. Rowling is on the verge of being canceled cancel my and subscription a, to the next harry potter book a lot of people are canceling harry potter already oh, I, I i canceled harry potter years ago well i finished uh, the series <laughs> my kids finished the series so i don't have to really do anything more yeah my youngest did not finish the series she because didn't. uh she doesn't like it. Oh, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't know. My, uh... <laughs> and part of the reason she doesn't like it is that, you know, the older one uh, got annoyed with it. Um, but uh, they're really taught. Both my kids really are fed up with chosen one narratives. Mm. And they complain about it like, oh, Harry's the chosen one. He gets everything and doesn't have to do anything. And uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, when you read the books, you, you realize that, like, Harry is just this uh, rich kid who's, like, given every... <laughs> Sounds like uh, we're dealing with a couple of Slytherins over there. Uh, 
<laughs> but but Harry, like his friends, do everything. All all his advantages come just through dumb luck, or he uh, is born for them. Like he he's just naturally the greatest Quidditch player ever. He's a, basically a Tom Sawyer. He gets all his friends to do the uh, paint work for him on the fence. He does, yes, and uh, then he takes all the credit and. Uh, but but he's totally he's just a lame character. Well, let's put it this way: I am not personally a big young adult uh, fantasy uh, reader. Well, that wasn't even young adult. I guess it's like what <laughs> young readers. I don't know what it is. Yeah, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, my boys read them. They enjoyed them. They moved on. I mean, my youngest mm-hmm. hasn't read them in a couple of years, and uh, I don't think he wants to go back. Well, actually, maybe he did reread the first one again. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Why are we talking about books? We got movies, right? That's what <laughs> well, the show is—a movie. <laughs> Show. There's Harry Potter movies. Okay. Those are getting yeah. canceled too. I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to go I, into that. Con- I, I, I honestly, I've read what she wrote and her, yeah. other, and I still can't make heads or tails of it. I don't know what she was really trying to say or I not trying know. to say. It was very yeah. confusing. Uh, that's why I'm not wandering into the details of it. But uh, I only saw the uh, first three Harry Potter movies. I never saw all of them. What? Yeah. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I think you're lying. No, totally true. You only saw the first three Harry Potters. Yes. That's insane. Yeah. I've seen them all, and I've seen them all in the theater. <laughs> yep. I, uh, oh, my God, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I saw several of them in IMAX, and, yep. oh, you, you're, you know... Why am I doing this show with you? <laughs> Why am I doing this show with you? You are quite the character. Um, <laughs> I uh, I just, uh, I mean, they're Harry Potter movies. Who cares? <laughs> the same people who care about Marvel movies. What yes, a, exactly. What a nice respite that's been that we haven't had any of those for over a year. What a, what a, um, that's like the it, pandemic did bring to a nice thing. <laughs> a little break from the superhero movie. Whoa, waiting into oh, controversy. Man. I don't think of the last few episodes and killed off our audience uh <laughs> yeah uh, oh man now we're dissing harry potter we're really uh, i'm not i i enjoy him for what he is you know the chosen one um <laughs> i uh i i once really upset somebody by talking about harry potter being the cho- you know basically what i'm telling I mean, you now but yeah but all those kid book right aren't they all driven by the one kid yes the, i mean yes, i don't understand why that's it's totally thing. annoying well because kids it's a fantasy to think that you're special and the world is about you yeah i mean i don't know how how great a book would be about non-special people <laughs> like well you know. uh i mean you can there's different types of special like harry just like i said he's just naturally the greatest quidditch player like you could have a character that has to work hard and train well i think you're wrong there i don't know if he's actually the best quidditch player uh he's naturally good at the broom but he gets good broom from his uncle. <laughs> exactly. Because, yes, again, my point, he gets the best broom. I know. I don't think that he's actually the best uh, Quidditch player. I think there's been a lot of other better Quidditch players on the show. But why are we even debating? <laughs> this is ridiculous. Okay, look, at, I'm going to go right to you because I don't feel like you ever watch anything. Uh, I have a whole bunch of things. And I know you didn't watch one thing, which I'm really annoyed by because I was very excited to have a big discussion on it. Yeah, we're going to do that next time because uh, we decided to tape two days earlier. Well, no, two, All right. Well, time out. Okay. Yeah. Two days earlier or five days late because we didn't <laughs> tape last week. So I gave I you know, even more there, time to watch stuff. But the movie you're talking about didn't come out till Friday. Right. And guess who saw it? Me, my wife, yes. our oldest son. We all watched it. 
because it was a great because that would be like the that's the thing we're trying to drive listeners to the show and we think that people would be interested in what we had to say about spike lee's the five bloods but guess what uh only one of the bloods me saw the movie I didn't finish it. Uh, you, yeah, well, how much you said that, right? I thought, oh, he started watching it before I even saw it. I don't know how much he's watched, but that means he'll just be able to bang it out. Now, what did you watch? Five minutes of the movie? No, I watched thirty minutes. Uh, thirty minutes. So you got the setup, but like, yeah, I got the setup, and I'm totally enjoying the movie. But mind you, it's two and a half hours. I get it. It, it, it is two and a half hours. Yeah, but it's really. Uh, I'm disappointed that you didn't watch that because it would have been a great thing to talk about, and I think that there's a lot of. Uh, interesting themes in the movie that tie in with what's going on in the world and going on in this country. And uh, I think that Spike Lee finds a way to take essentially, to me, it's a genre movie. Right. But he elevates it in certain areas that when he does those things, it's interesting. And then there's, but I still have some problems with the movie because Spike Lee is an uneven filmmaker. Right. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about, some of that stuff. So you're going to have to see it. And yep, then I guess I next episode, people, as a preview, we're going to talk about The Five Bloods because Teal swears he will finish the final two hours. Yes, I will. Uh, I'm totally, I was totally enjoying it. I just uh, ran out of time. Yeah, of course you did. I did. I ran out of time. Well, we made it our point to watch it as our Saturday night movie, partly because I yeah. thought we were going to talk about it. <laughs> we, we we had a different Saturday night movie. By the way, I, I, I think that if I thought that you really would have seen it by Friday, I would have pushed this taping till Friday, but I knew that it wouldn't have mattered and that you still it wouldn't would have, have seen it. No, you would have. not have seen it. Yes, I would have. I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think you would have wanted to, but then you'd have been like, yeah, I still didn't get to see it. No, I would have been able to do it by Friday. Mm, yeah, okay. All right. Well, you, you, so Saturday was not for Defy Bloods. It was for something else. So I'm having this uh, this issue okay. where my older kid yeah. uh, can pretty much watch anything. Yep, just like my oldest son. Yep. Yeah, and which is great. But she also, I realized... Even when she was younger, she she had more tolerance for, you know, violence or blood or things like that uh, than my youngest does. And so now, now my eight-year-old uh, can't deal with those things. Well, she's only eight. She's only eight. Um, but, but she's even, I think, she has more of a problem with them than the other one did at age eight. Okay, but I mean, I wouldn't suggest, like, your eight-year-old watch The Five Bloods. No, 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 I'm not suggesting that. But, like, she won't watch uh, Star Wars. Well, I mean, but maybe she's just not interested in Star Wars. Oh, no, she loves Star Wars. But there's no blood in Star Wars. There's just well, a lot star- of stormtroopers getting know, we shot. Started watching, uh, we started watching Force Awakens. Okay. And and there's some blood on Finn's helmet at, in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. And that was enough for her to want to turn the movie off. Well, but so but that's still, what? where are you going with this? You you say, like, what's your problem? Your problem is what? Like, So I- the problem <laughs> is that we're very limited on what we can watch as a family. Well, on a Saturday night, what time is this kid going to bed? <laughs> like I, our our youngest, we still send him to bed and the oldest stays up so that we can watch the things that he won't watch. Yeah. So anyway, we watched. Hey, uh, he skips over that part. He's like, uh, <laughs> well, you're making this narrative hard for me. <laughs> no, no, no. It's because uh, 
Okay. This is, it's because I, w- I wasn't going to go into all the details, but I guess now I will. Yeah, well, we went to the details about how you haven't seen any of the Harry Potter movies <laughs> after the third one, probably because of the blood. Exactly there because of the actually, blood. actually, that's probably way more violent than Star Wars. I am just not a Harry Potter fan. Okay. Uh, so anyhow, yes, the schedule is such that- I'm going to strap you up and I'm going to make the Ludovico technique on you so I and have... make you watch all the Harry Potter movies <laughs> until you say, I'm cured. <laughs> I love Harry Potter. And except it's the Ludovico technique where it makes you feel good instead of bad. Okay. Yeah. All right. So uh, I'm sorry. I keep interrupting you because this so is also anyway, fascinating. Anyway, at, at the- You're limited when you, in your family watching. Exactly. I'm limited in the family watching. I'm I'm watching stuff with my older daughter, but we're watching TV. We're watching that show, The Society. Oh, you've moved on to a new show. Well, we, that's we're not binging. We're watching. And I'm not going to go into all the details on this. Suffice it to say that on Saturday, our Saturday movie was Trolls World Tour. Which you actually mentioned you wanted to see or you were considering that you would pay for it. I exactly. Uh, I was considering that I would pay because my youngest really wants to wanted to see it. She kind of dictates what the family movie is. That that's what I was getting at. Is it now at a cheaper price point? Uh, I don't think so. We we questioned this logic uh, several shows ago. Where if it's twenty dollars, at some point are they going to lower the price because it would really suck to spend twenty dollars and find out next week it is like you know right just a few dollars. And I've noticed on some of these rental movies they're not all the same. If they're not considered what was going to be a major release. They don't charge as much. There's been right. some movies available that I could have seen for six dollars, ten dollars. Yeah. So okay, you're you're not sure what it cost you to see Trolls Ward Tour. Exactly. I I was not in charge of doing the rental. But you've been sucked in by Universal's streaming plan to successfully make all their money on the Trolls. Do you realize? I, I watched a thing about this just the other day. Yeah. Trolls World Tour has made more money streaming than the first movie did in its entire <laughs> domestic run. That's kind of amazing. Wow. So, yeah. And, and I think, you know, special circumstances had the movie, because of the pandemic, I think uh, people were looking for stuff. It's one of the few new family films and people with their kids at home wanted something for the kids to watch. And so it it's sort of the perfect storm, I think, for this movie to make all that money on streaming. Right. Because like what you're saying is that under different circumstances, what, what happened here is a success isn't necessarily going to be duplicated. Exactly. Yes. I, I don't think it can be duplicated. Now, did you watch this on your big screen? Yes. That, okay. And the kids enjoy that? Uh, the kids enjoy that. Uh, and I uh, I liked the first Trolls movie. And I, you know, I think I was in the room while the first Trolls movie went on and I've seen parts. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, there's something about, and, and, uh, the second one is pretty good too. It's not quite as good, but is there a, uh, chosen troll narrative? Uh, (laughs) 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 yes, kind of, um, (laughs) this one has that classic sequel thing, right? Where there's like a newcomer in town who's going to bring like. I don't know, grunge or something to the whole yes. clan and ruin everything if yes. they don't stop it with, uh, I don't know, multiple forms of music. That's exactly what happens. It's all about, uh, you know, <laughs> that sounds it's all about, me. it's all about celebrating our differences and 
that we can all have different kinds of music, but that doesn't mean that we have to, you know, knock out other kinds of music. Well, this sounds just like uh, Spencer Tracy at the end of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I can enjoy this flavor of ice cream and someone else can enjoy a different flavor of ice cream. That's that's basically what the movie comes down to. Racism is solved. Racism is solved. Yeah. And uh, although this, because it's music, it was not about race, but about cultural differences, I guess. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Sorry. But it's, uh, I don't know what it is about these Trolls movies, um, but they tickle me. I, I, know, that, <laughs> I know they're not that great. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't, you know, argue with somebody and say this is a good movie, uh, objectively. But I, I like them. I don't know why exactly they tickle me. They make me giggle. I uh, think all the fun colors swirling around. You know what they are? They're they're your uh, sour patch kids of movies. <laughs> they kind of are. Yeah, <laughs> they taste gross, and then you're kind of like, yeah, that's pretty good. But that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, and so I, anyhow, I liked the Trolls Two movie. I. Uh, think the the music is fun the um sort of psychedelic aspect of the visuals i also as you know like anna kendrick yeah that's that could be a whole separate show i'm not sure i <laughs> i'm a, i'm fully on there I, I you know i don't know I, I she doesn't get me into the movie theater but she doesn't like uh you know drive me away either so well she's definitely not getting getting me into the theater but i do like her i like the pitch perfect movies more than i should say wait 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 wait, wait. Okay, the first Pitchburg movie was yes. great, really yeah. enjoyable. I wish I'd seen it in the theater. I, I really yep. liked it. The second movie was pretty, pretty bad. And the third movie, I just went on the second movie. I'm like, I can't even see this third movie because the second one is so horrible. The third one is just awful. It, it's, the third one is just awful? The third one is so much worse than the second oh, one. Oh, but I thought the second one was abhorrent, so I guess I don't want to see the third. The third is much, much, much worse than the second. I think they should have stayed with one movie. It was perfect. It was yeah, pitch it was, perfect. It's pitch perfect. Yeah. It's a. Uh, yeah. So, I, yes, I like the first one. I actually enjoyed the second one. Uh, I hate the third one. It's kind of like Revenge of the Nerds. You know, I liked the first one a lot, and you thought, well, these characters, they're going to have great adventures. Let's give us more nerds. No, no. Everything after Revenge of the Nerds 1 was not good. Yeah. Well, and so part of the reason that I think I like Pitch Perfect, and even though, and I even kind of like the second one, I think part of the reason is, is that I just like the music. Right. You're discovering the new music that the kids all like today. That the kids all like. You know, my kids know all the songs, but. Right. Uh, and, and I didn't. <laughs> and there's no, but there's I, no blood in Pitch Perfect, I think. There's so no blood. Your, your youngest should be okay. But I do like the music. And it's similar to the Trolls movies where I like the music. And so I'll forgive a lot of other things because I like the music. And, and so it's just sort of a fun kind of music video. Right. That's what I like about Pitch Perfect. And, you know, the, the characters are fun and stuff, but mostly I like the, uh, the the music aspect. Well, you know that Anna Kendrick started on Broadway. Yes, yes. And then she was in this movie that I, I actually, based on some earlier conversations we had offline, I was looking at this first film that she was in called Camp. And yeah. I really wanted to see the movie because it is directed by the guy that made another film that I loved called Band Slam. Oh, okay. And he was a former actor named Todd Graff. He, was, uh, he played this creepy villain in the movie Five Corners. And okay. And 
this camp is all about these kids that go to a theater camp. And it's based on a documentary about these kids that went to a theater camp. And Anna Kendrick, because she's like only 13 or 14 in the movie, is in this camp movie, but you can't stream it for free anywhere. Okay. So uh, that's actually going to be on my radar screen. Uh, but did you see her in Into the Woods? Uh, yes. Yeah, I like that, actually. Yeah, that was good, too. And there's a segue, because that is Stephen Sondheim. Yes. Well, I was kind of segueing there anyway. We were, yeah. we were going to eventually get there. But see, our, our, our MO is usually 19 or 20 minutes before we get in there, and that's where we're at. <laughs> we had to get that Harry Potter discussion in. <laughs> you never know where this show's going to take you. I certainly didn't know it was going to take us there, except for I did the introduction, and that you was my mistake. You did the introduction, which, which always sends us down a rabbit hole. Yeah, maybe I'll stop doing those. <laughs> uh, never. Uh, so... Okay, a few episodes ago, I mentioned that the Criterion Channel, the beloved Criterion Channel, thank you for the Criterion Channel for making my day so bright. I have these weird movies that are always in my head that I would like love to see or see again and no place has them. And I go, I bet you sooner or later, the Criterion Channel will get it. And lo and behold, time and time again, they do not disappoint. They get these movies. And I have been obsessed with seeing this 53-minute documentary from D.A. Pennebaker called Original Cast Album Company ever since uh, way back in February of 2019 where the IFC show Documentary Now, which is the spoofs of documentaries, they did a spoof of that D.A. Pennebaker documentary uh, where instead of company, it was called co-op and it was about it. It was supposed to be in the yeah. 1970s and <laughs> took place as a, as a musical about a co-op. Uh, so finally, Criterion Channel put it on and they they put it on like they load it up at the very beginning of the month. But if yeah. you wait a couple of weeks, they sometimes add additional features. Oh, And so just the other day, they added – they already had the movie. They had a movie version with a commentary track on it. And then they just added a half-hour discussion with several of the creators and cast of the Documentary Now co-op discussing both their show and the inspiration oh. of company and why they loved that documentary so much. Interesting. So, of course, I've watched – I've watched Company. I've watched it twice. Then I watched it a third time with the commentary. And right. I've seen the IFC uh, special that they added on there. And, of course, I rewatched the documentary now thing co-op because I hadn't seen the original when I watched right. this thing. And I thought that was hilarious. But now having seen the documentary, it's even funnier and how they chose to um, spoof it. So Yeah. So I told you you had to see this. Um, I'm kind of glad if you uh, – of course, I'm going on the assumption that you did. And if I you, did. If you told me you didn't, I didn't <laughs> reach through that microphone and tell you. But, no, of course. It, so here's the thing. I had seen Company before. Well, here's – that's what – so I – you know, we haven't talked about it, but I was wondering if you did because of your association with D.A. Pennebaker. Yes. I had seen it before, but not – you know, that must have been 1989. Right. And you're, you're, you're an 18 year old kid and yeah. you probably, you know, you probably just thought it was a thing. You didn't even really, I don't know if it means anything different to you now being the age you're at versus. Yeah. I mean, I see, of course, I, I understand it in a different way now. But yeah, I had seen it before and had kind of forgotten that I had seen it. And, and then, like, in the first three minutes of, uh, of watching it, I realized, oh, yes, it's this. I've seen this. Right. I think, you know, a couple of things. The 
one of the first things I thought while watching this, like in the first five minutes, I thought, man, I've really missed unscripted documentaries. Yes. Yeah. Cause those aren't the, the there's a, there's a shift in how yes. documentaries are put in. You ain't watch any of these like myriad Netflix crime specials. There's a whole approach to it, right? There's a whole approach to it. It's a really manipulative narrative. Uh, they like hold out secrets. They build stuff up. They, and and it just uh, and and then they're all written in such a way that they really have an agenda and are trying to convince you. Like they're 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 rhetoric essentially. They're trying to persuade you to see things a certain way or to under, have a certain understanding or even you know like uh, they're trying to persuade you to become a vegan. There's a whole bunch right. of those whole bunch of those on Netflix. D.A. Pennebaker wasn't uh, trying to get you to uh, suddenly compose uh, musicals with this. It, exactly. Exactly. It's just observational. It's uh, and, and, you know, the cinema verite was a big deal uh, at the time, but it's sort of gone by the wayside now. I don't see a lot of verite documentaries. Well, you know, it's interesting when I was listening to the panel that was done on Zoom for Documentary Now when they were talking yeah. about this. Uh, the creators, uh, and this is where John Mulaney, he was one of the writers. He was also played the sort of uh, Stephen Sondheim yeah. character. He, he, They were saying is that the way D.A. Pennebaker, you know, shot this film, they tried their best to imitate the style. Yeah. But even though it just seems like it would be obvious and easy to do, it's very hard to do. Uh, and it's probably because he was just there for the entire duration and just right. loading up cameras and capturing things. And then in the editing room, he put together what worked and was interesting to him. But he does create that, that we've used that term, fly on the wall. Yes. And it really becomes where he's zooming in and out with his camera. He's yes. probably over on the corner and people start to forget about him after a yes. while. And so he just captures, and this is why I've used this term, fascinating, because I was so fascinated by this documentary. Well, yeah. Okay. My other thing very early on in this was like in the first 10 minutes, I thought, and, and this is Pennebaker. This is what Pennebaker is all about. I mean, the, 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 you mentioned the camera work, but it's also the editing. Pennebaker's editing is astoundingly good. Yeah, and he sometimes doesn't get you like if you notice because he'll because in the commentary that I listened to that had Ben Baker yeah. on it, he mentions that sometimes he cheats a little bit where he to keep the thread he might borrow from a different take even yes. though they were doing the same part. And you know what? Sometimes a voice or a thing clearly doesn't match up in the documentary. Right. But it's like he doesn't care. He doesn't, he, he doesn't he's not care. worried about 100% accuracy. He's That's not what he's going for. He's going for like capturing flow, mood, spirit. It's exactly. Yeah, uh, and to to get you I mean, you really feel like you get a sense of what it's like to be in this room for all those hours and hours and hours and he he can communicate a feeling. And, and sort of an ambiance in a way that if it was just documenting it, well, and, and that's why the, the documentary now, the co-op one, it, it, it doesn't, it, it, they're trying to imitate and you can see that they're trying to imitate, but it doesn't have the same flow and life to it. Yeah. Now, when I watch it the first time, cause I, I knew, oh, they're, you know, they were doing a, I, yeah. I found out they were doing this 
little known D.A. Pennebaker documentary, which I had never seen. And so having not seen it, I went through it and I'm like, oh, you know, this is hilarious. And I like the level of detail they go through to imitate. But then it wasn't until watching it back again that I could see how different it was in the style for yes. D.A. Pennebaker. Um, but yeah, he creates this dynamic where he builds tension in yes. something where this is just a cast recording, but when you can see the reaction in the booth and, you know, you see the the director, the engineer of the um, of the recording session, Thomas Z. Shepard. He was like one of my yeah. favorite characters. The guy's got yes. like an ascot on there. I and, love the ascot, yeah. <laughs> like we should have more ascots going on. And also, like the juice of you, you're crazy. He's doing something, but I hardly hear it. The ending was great. Just a moment. Tom. Steve. Can we get some dynamics into it? Like, like person, um, and then when, you do, when they do the doo doo doos, get quiet and then sing again. So that there's that. It's possible, except those doo doos are high. It's very hard. Yeah. That's really a question of delicacy in that volume yeah. because you can't get Donna to sing that All soft, right. you know. Nobody can sing on A. There's so. something so marvelously ludicrous about yeah. about uh, I'll try to get something more contrast. But him, and then you see Sondheim, and you see Harold Prince, and all of these people. Uh, and then, first of all, I'm not like a I'm not a huge theater guy. Um, yeah. I kind of wish that I'd seen more theater productions over the years um, and had the money to go see things on Broadway. But as I started to listen to the process of them putting together this album and these songs. We're freaking catchy as all hell. Um, <laughs> I couldn't, like, I ended up like uh, going to my Apple Music, and we have like an Apple Music family yeah, pass. Yeah. And afterwards, I like grabbed the original cast recording. It was cool to hear the finished production, but then right. look back and go, oh my goodness, I remember I'm, like watching these takes. And now you have like a visual moment of what was going on, which you never have when you right. are hearing all of these great studio pieces, whether it's a rock and roll piece or whether it's, you know, a theater cast album, you don't know what looked like in the session. But because Penna Baker was there and has captured this, you could listen to the album and now you can visually see the moments that were happening behind the scenes. Yes. I These things became earworms for me in the past week. I've like couldn't get certain songs out of my head because <laughs> I'm just so fed because they're so complicated to hear these singers and how they have to pull off. Uh, it's amazing. And I, 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 that kept occurring to me too. Like how did, how did Sondheim even write these? Like it's called musical genius. Cause I might watch it and this guy, how he could, I mean, you know, holy crap. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, he really, it is musical genius and just to even conceptualize some of those things. Yeah. And you see this, you see it in the movie. I, you know, it was interesting in documentary. Now they kind of make fun of Sondheim as being this kind of pretentious dude. And I guess he, I guess here's the thing is that the characters in company are really layered. I felt like, <laughs> I well, mean, I kind of wish that I could see the, like the whole thing because I've, I've now done some more research because I didn't know this play very well at all. Yeah. Um, and other versions that have been done over the years. And some of those songs, 
actually, if you saw them in the performance, yeah, uh, they're actually stopped. There's like dialogue in between and other things going on. But they, the way that they used to shoot these, you know, the, uh, record these cast albums, they just did the whole songs. So right. it's hard to get a sense of what some of these songs are about unless you know the play. Okay. Yeah. And there's a lot of things for 1970. I mean, it's pretty, it's kind of dated, but for 70, it was dealing with issues and themes of people in their mid thirties, which, you know, if you weren't married by your mid thirties back then, there was something wrong with you. That's the way society viewed it. You had, you know, and, uh, there's a lot of subtext because people like Sondheim, who he had just come out of the closet, so to speak in 1970. Okay, interesting. And so when you're dealing with a character um, that was written by this guy, George Firth, that can't commit and is kind of going from relationship to relationship and doesn't want to get married and stuff, there's definitely other layers. I guess there's a lot of, there's like one character who um, is married, but is probably gay and um, a lot of other things. One character is an alcoholic. So there's like a ton of things going on. And that's why I guess- at the time, the the musical was uh, was very successful because it dealt with right. things that musical theater didn't really do. Interesting. It was supposed to be revived on Broadway this year for its fiftieth anniversary. Oh wow! But, but of course, not, yeah. And now, of course, I'm all I'm like, I want to see that. <laughs> I got to see Company because I've got all these freaking songs going in my head. But you know, documentary now because I've seen all the documentary now. Yeah. They just take these things as inspiration so they can do huge parodies. Right, um, right. And I just think it's so funny because at the beginning of every episode of Documentary Now, a very, very serious Helen Mirren comes out. Yes. And introduces <laughs> is, it. Yes. And But she does what I feel like the best spoof should do. She plays it so 100% straight. Yes. It's like she was hired to do a professional gig for a serious show. Well, I can see somebody who uh, doesn't know what's going on actually falling for the show. <laughs> well, the very first episode they ever did was a Grey Garden spoof. Right. But with the two sisters, which are played by like uh, uh, Fred Armisen and uh, okay. somebody else, they're basically serial killers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it just goes on from there. There's so many great episodes. <laughs> um, yeah. I'll wa- I, I, the only one I've seen is the uh, salesman one. Yeah. And I realized that you, I think, saw it over my house where you had come over because oh. I showed you at least parts of it. You know, I was going through all the episodes of Documentary Now and, and a bunch of the documentaries I haven't seen. So I don't, I, I don't well, know I if even, I'll get the joke. Well, even uh, the ones I haven't seen, I kind of get the style they're picking up and stuff. So, right. uh, you know, but it, but anyways, I'm glad you saw that. And I think it's worthwhile for people who have Criterion Channel to check this out. And then if you can, like uh, Netflix, I think has documentary now. You can watch yeah. all of the episodes. You might want to go then watch uh, co-op. But yeah, Company, I just felt like was such, uh, it had so much depth actually. I, I felt like I really got to know the people and that bit at the end with Elaine Stritch. That's, that's, you know, that's what it's most famous for. And it is incredible yeah. because it's interesting when I first watched it, having not known about the history there, yeah, I thought, oh, you know, she's really belting out this song and she's got all this emotion. And then it starts to unfold of how, you know, they're like, this isn't really that good. And you know, you've got to try to get it again and they're trying not to hurt her feelings and yeah. stuff. And then she goes back. But then when she comes back the next day and does it when she's refreshed and first of all, she's all made up because she had just been done. She was just getting ready for the matinee or something that she doesn't even look like the same person. No. 
And she and you can tell, whoa, this is a much better take. Then I hear the final, like all put together version that I've been listening to all week. And I'm like, wow, you know, really, I'm glad they fought for a better version. Well, then when I watched it again, I'm listening back now, having been very familiar with the final version from listening to it. And I'm like, oh, man, you're you know, she just isn't that good. She yeah, is right. just talking it through. She's not singing it. And now I understand where these professionals in there, yeah. uh, they were like, it's not good enough. This is the, you know, this was the final verdict, the right. album that all people are going to know. And people like myself who may never get to see the actual production. So it's got to be good. Yep. I had the same reaction at first. I was like, she's, she's doing fine. This, this is great. And then, <laughs> and then when you hear the difference between the two, it is, it's really stunning when she comes back and does it. It's, it's wow. Oh, that's what it's supposed to sound like. And then, I mean, mind you, these are actors that like, when they're not recording this, they also have to be dancing on stage and yes. everything and choreography. So one of the people in this documentary plays this character who doesn't want to get married. And this is a funny song about, so it was like, there's a chorus, right. like yeah. pretending that the ceremony is going on. And then she's just like, I'm not going to get married. And that is played by um, a late actress, Beth Holland. And most people would know her. I don't think you did because I don't think you watched a lot of shows as a kid, but she was Vera on Alice, the TV show. She was like this crazy waitress. And, she, I don't think she was like, I don't think singing was her number one strength. Right. And the problem they were having with her is that she has to do this insane, yes. fast patterned uh, performance. And they were trying to figure out how they could edit the performance with her breath. So yes. when they were talking, I didn't pick this up necessarily till the second time I watched it, but while they were talking about where she has to breath, they were basically in a nice way saying is there's no way you can sing it the way a real singer could sing this. So we need you to take a breath uh, so that we can cut it together in the editing oh, room. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I didn't really get that. Where digitally today, there's probably a lot of things that these things would be enhanced. Right. But back then, what I thought was just cool is this live. No, did you notice? I don't know if you notice about a lot of musical theater today, but if you listen to any uh, modern musical, and even like Hamilton, the orchestra is pretty small. Oh, right. You don't hear the big sound that you heard here because it's probably so freaking expensive to have all these people like show after show. So they strip that down on most musicals because it would cost too much. And then when you get into the, you know, the cast recording, you don't get that big sound either but this had such a huge sound there was there's a moment where uh where they tell her they're gonna do the orchestra take yeah she looked her look it was almost like you failed yeah yeah and and she just and she walks out and there's this shot of her sort of walking past the orchestra and out this door and uh for some reason at that moment i just thought Wow, these orchestra guys have been there the whole time too, oh, and yeah. it must be so exhausting. I mean, sure, all the pressure is on her in that moment, but these guys have to do it right every time. And yeah, it just you know because they're there till like four or five o'clock in the morning, and it, it, you just you really feel like how tired and punchy they are. Like when I got this is fifty three minutes, so easy to watch. And it is just so dynamic because it gets you thinking about all sorts of things about process. Yes. 
And so that's where, again, I, I think why D.A. Pennebaker was so well regarded is you just take this example is he finds a way without being showy right. or high tech is he captures a moment and he turns it into what feels like what I always loved about documentaries. It feels real. Yes. And in a way that today's slick productions don't don't capture. Yeah. Like there's like that Joe Tiger or whatever, that, that Tiger King thing. Tiger King. It feels yeah. like a bunch of reality show people, um, you know, mugging for the cameras to see how crazy I can be. Yeah. Uh, and then of course, later not liking the fact that they've turned themselves into crazy. And I only wish this was supposed to be a whole series. Yes. I, yeah. And it only turned out to be this one. Um, but boy, what an interesting series it would have been to see D.A. Yeah. record these sessions. I think where the problem would have come is, can he make it feel any different with each one or would it get repetitive, you know? I think he would be able to. I mean, that's that was his talent was kind of finding these stories within stuff. I mean, look at uh, don't don't look back. But then also, you know, say like Monterey Pop, like you know, when he's when Pennebaker filmed music, he it, it didn't get boring. He found a way to uh, he he found his way inside it somehow. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and you know, there's other filmmakers that are like that. We just funny we just talked about. Uh, I mentioned Grey Gardens. So the yeah. Mazels, they were yes. another uh, two when they did Gimme Shelter. Yes, they just they captured a moment. Yes, um, it was more than like oh a great concert film. It wasn't a great concert film. Instead, they captured a document of of how a movement in the country started to go horribly wrong. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Uh, they didn't set out to do that, but because they were just there to capture, you just never know if you're going to get something. And they exactly. did. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, when I watched the little panel show about uh, company where the people from Documentary Now were talking about it, one person made a very interesting observation and it was about Pennebaker. They felt that Pennebaker, his editing added a sense of humor. Oh, yeah. And well, so one moment that they talked about and then they show that scene and I was like, wow, you know, that's a really good observation is there's a moment where they're taking a lunch break. Yeah. And they're in this crowded, tiny little restaurant and you have like yes, yes, Carol yes. Prince and you have Sondheim and they're kind of going over and just discussing the evolution of uh company. And then Elaine Strict is having lunch with them too. And in the middle, they're interrupted by Thomas Shepard. This is the right. engineer. And he is basically going to tell them that he's gone through the whole thing and realizes they're going to end up in at four in the morning. Right. And yes. what you may not realize, and we don't know because they don't go into this, but Elaine Strict had wanted to do her big number at the end uh. because she was nervous and didn't want everybody else around. She knew that most of the other performers were right. going home. So she wanted that concentration. Okay. So- what happens is that Thomas Shepard, when he goes in there, he knows when he says four in the morning, he is saying it for her benefit. And right. when he says that, he turns over and he goes, oh, hi, Elaine. And it's a oh. moment where there's a little subtlety where he's just basically acknowledging that, guess what? It's four in the morning and that's going to be you. And of course, Pennebaker puts that moment in there and it sort of subconsciously sets yeah. up the big drama that happens in the last 15 minutes of the documentary. That is editing genius. Yes. Yep. 
And so, I mean, I, we never really got to do a big homage to D.A. Pennebaker uh, when he passed away, but I think this was a great opportunity to just talk about what an awesome filmmaker yeah. he was and how, you know, through Criterion Channel, you can probably catch up on some things. Exactly. Uh, is Daybreak Express still on there? We talked about that on the show at one point. It should be. should be. You can check yeah. that out. Um, but anyways, I'm glad you saw that. Um, and it just it reminds me that, you know, not everything is about a feature on Criterion Channel. There's all these right. little things. And then, you know, one other thing that I'll mention on Criterion Channel, I'm not sure how much time we're going to have to get on these things, but you didn't see anything else other than Trolls, did you? No. Okay. So they're doing a, a little series for Pride Month, which is now June, and they call it Turn the Gaze Around. Okay. And it's basically, you know, picking a selection of, uh, you know, gay and lesbian filmmakers and some of their uh, film works. And it kind of focuses on different ways to look at the story of right. um, LGBTQ characters. And I, what caught my eye was this one film called The Watermelon Woman by a filmmaker named Cheryl Dunya. I saw that like on the front page of Criterion. And, and that's what's so great is that Criterion puts these, you know, they feature yeah. these things. And so I'm like, oh, well, what's this? And I just kind of decided I'll dive into this. It's yeah, not a yeah. very long movie and I'll watch it. And then I've, I I haven't quite finished it. It's only 50 minutes, but I haven't quite finished the second film that she did called Owls, which stands for Older, Wiser, Lesbian Sisters. Okay. And the whole thing with this uh, with Cheryl is that Cheryl is very fascinated on kind of breaking down the typical narrative film. Right. And okay. inserts a whole different approach where there's suddenly interviews in the middle of things. Sometimes oh, wow. there's the actors talking about playing the characters. Sometimes. Oh, wow. Okay. Other weird stuff that, you know, I don't know if as, as narrative movies, they're very successful right. uh, in the typical way. Like The Watermelon Woman, it really feels independent. It feels that she has a narrative about basically playing herself as a young uh, black lesbian wants to be a filmmaker who okay. is obsessed with this old like 30s movie that features this black actress in what she calls a mammy role. Right, right, right. She becomes obsessed with this actress who shares some kind of lesbian relationship on screen with another character. So she tries oh, to, and she only is called the watermelon woman. Right. right. So she's now, Cheryl's talking, basically she's trying to bring in like how people of color were portrayed in Hollywood for the years. And right, also right, right. the, this was supposed to be a woman filmmaker that made this movie and how rare it would be that a woman filmmaker um, also kind of had lesbian themes in there. So she goes on a quest. I'm assuming this film is pre-code. Yeah, it was like a pre-code. However, the the long and the short of it is this is all a movie she made up. Oh, wow. And she even says at the end is that she wants to be able to tell her own truth. She had to make up a fake story. And then it also involves her relationship. She works at a, like a video store, which is fast. This is early 90s. This came out. Right, right. But it's fascinating because like video stores don't exist anymore. Yeah. And it kind of captures a moment of what like living in New York in the early 90s was like. And there's themes in her own life about her various relationships with her lesbian friends. And then this uh 
person who becomes her girlfriend who's white and there's a lot of dynamics between her black friends who are lesbians and how they feel that she's like, you know, this white girl just wants to date a a black sister. And so this film is about a lot of things and a lot of issues more than it is about whether or not it's a great execution right. of a narrative film and it doesn't even really end like there's a lot of it's almost like she ran out of money <laughs> to make the movie and there's other yeah. things she intersplices just stuff to almost like pad the movie to make it feature length right so it's very experimental very weird but it also reminds me that not every film is going to be a mass audience movie theater right. experience that there are these films that tell stories and that's what Cheryl Dunya, she has things she wants to say. She uses film as a vehicle to say them. Right. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. And it's not, uh, we, we do get so tied into, uh, our expectations of sort of standard narrative that it can throw us off when, when things like this happen, where they're, you know, cutting in interviews and stuff like that. Well, that's why I thought it was healthy for me to watch a movie like this, because like you just said, we get so used to seeing a certain type of movie and I need to be uh, kind of step away from that. And that's why I thought it's like, well, today's theme here, documentary uh, cast album, that's not even a full feature, but yet it's a great, it was a great cinematic experience for me. And then Cheryl Dunya's work, like this Owls, it's 53 minutes. And I don't think she had enough material for a whole feature and it surrounds a group of older wiser (laughs) lesbian sisters (laughs) that are been friends for years some of them have been in like some kind of rock group and then there's some friend of theirs that it looks like they've murdered and you get a little bit of why they did but then this stranger shows up at the house uh that they're like living in some hollywood pad and the stranger now again this was back in 2010 i think you would consider this person, maybe they were considered transgender. Um, It takes a while to reveal because you're not sure. The person portrays themselves to look almost like a man, but you slowly reveal that it is a very strong, muscular woman. Um, And then they talk, then they break down in interviews, they discuss that. And then that character discusses how sometimes she feels a little bit more feminine, sometimes she feels more masculine. And so like, there's a lot of ideas being thrown around. Right. And around this little thin narrative that, like, that's not... So, I mean, again, it's like, well, I haven't really quite seen a movie like this. Well, and there's a lot of movies with a thin narrative that have nothing to say. Yeah, I have one of those on my (laughs) list today to to talk about. Um, And that's what I thought was so fascinating. So then another uh, film that I was desperate to rewatch, and I mentioned this, I think, on an episode, and this is part of their Turn the Gaze Around series on Criterion Channel, was uh, Gus Van Sant's follow-up to Drugstore Cowboy, 1991's My Own Private Idaho. Yes. I'm I'm assuming you've seen this. I've seen it. You watched it again? I did. Now, I'm going to put myself back in a 1991 fall of 91 and it was my senior year at NYU and two years before Gus Van Sant, you know, really broke out with Drugstore Drugstore Cowboy. Cowboy. Yeah. Thought it was one of the best films of the year. I loved it. Yeah, me too. Still love it. So, oh yeah, me too. Seen it. I saw it a couple years ago. Still liked it. So there was a lot of anticipation around NYU for his follow-up film. Yes. I remember seeing the trailer and I thought that was intriguing. The cast, the whole thing just seemed like, uh, yeah, it, 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 
it got a lot of press. People were really talking about it. Well, yeah. So there was a lot of excitement. And I remember that when it first came out, it probably came out to like just a theater in LA and it came out yeah. in a theater, a couple of theaters in New York. One was like in the West Village. It was at like the Waverly. And, you know, think about this now. Here is a film that was largely focused on, uh, well, I think they called it queer cinema at the time. Yeah. That, you know, gay themes in a way that wasn't normally portrayed at the time. Right. And you were dealing with one of the hottest actors in Hollywood, and that was River Phoenix. Yeah. And this guy decides to make like this independent film. And then, of course, Keanu Reeves, who was kind of hot at the time. Yep. And they were going to be like, you know, playing like gay street hustlers in Portland. And I remember that when the box office came out after like the opening weekend, it had some insane number for theater average for just being like, you know, probably, you know, somewhere in L.A. and also in New York and the Waverly down in the right, right in the heart of the West Village. I went with this girl that I knew from film school. And I think we just had run into each other, this girl, Jenny Hughes, and she wanted to go. So we had like sort of a friend date to go see it. Right. And we had to get tickets early, like, because everything was selling out. And so we had dinner at my apartment first and and went. And this place was packed. Oh, wow. Packed. So there was just this anticipation. And I remember by the end of it, I really felt a little flat because- Yeah. It really didn't have much of a story to my memory, and I just wasn't what I was expecting. Whatever, I don't know what I was expecting. So I, I really just right. felt I didn't like it. And then I recall having watched maybe moments of it on cable, like maybe a couple okay. years after. But then I feel like it just disappeared for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. It's a, kind of a forgotten film. So I got to rewatch the film for the first time in its entirety since 1991. And I had some of the same feelings. Okay. Uh, it, it doesn't really have a very strong plot. I feel like Gus Van Sant had ideas more than he had yeah. uh, a screenplay. And there's all sorts of Shakespeare stuff in it, too. There right? is a little bit of Shakespeare. Um, it's interesting. The guy who plays this sort of father figure yeah. um, to a lot of the homeless street kids. And he's a little bit like a, a little Falstaffian. And yes. He is played by a writer who also wrote this book, Night in the Life of Jimmy Reardon, that River Phoenix was in. So maybe there was an association there, which is how he got to be in this film. Okay, interesting. I think also that Gus Van Sant knew him. He was like in that Portland area. And so that's like kind of fascinating. Flea is in it. So basically, as I watched this movie, that it feels very what kind of cycles around itself. Yes. It, yes. it goes keeps going back to Idaho and, and other places, and the story just kind of goes round and round. And part of the time, I actually got into it in a much different way this time, where I where I realized that well, here's a story, and it's not unlike a beat novel. Right. Uh, Gus Van Sant might have actually been a really interesting choice to do on the road. Yeah, he would have been. Um, and so it's filled with a lot of very cool images. Yes. And it's very dreamlike, and he's more interested in these characters more than any plot, because these people are largely kind of plotless. Right, right. Um, And so I kind of enjoyed that. But by the end of the movie, it was still, it just kind of ends, and it really felt like, even for a, a, a film that didn't really have a strong plot, he didn't really know how to end the movie. Right. So it just kind of ends, and... 
it even says a thing where it comes up on the screen and says, have a nice day. And it almost feels like a joke <laughs> where he's like, well, I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> so have a nice day. And, you know, maybe because he was so hot off of uh, Drugstore Cowboy and people were going to give him money. He's like, I got to go with it. <laughs> and, and the filmmakers did that. There are a lot of filmmakers that. I don't know. They have this ability to say, well, I have an idea and we're going to create a story. I think like Kong War. Wong Kar Wai. Yeah, Wong Kar Wai does that. Yes. Um, he tries to find the story as he's filming. And sometimes I think it works for him and sometimes it doesn't. Right. Yeah. It's it's <laughs> it's it, it's a weird way to go into making a movie. But some people, well, same with Mike Lee. He he does a similar type of thing. Yeah, but he does it like, like we've talked about it. He yeah. workshops until it's actually a story and then he goes and films it. <laughs> and then he goes and films it. Yeah. For those who are not really familiar, and that's probably a whole generation with River Phoenix, this is a great film to see what a great actor this guy was. Yes. And how it's just, he has a very dynamic screen presence, a lot of layers to him. And, you know, we lost him way too soon. Way too soon. Yeah. Uh, You know, this guy would have just been doing tons of stuff had he not gotten involved in drugs and died. (laughs) Right. Oh, man. Yeah. Tragedy. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, so I saw that and then a quick little mention. Yeah. There's a series that my wife and I have been watching. Took us a while to get through it, but Uh we finally finished it. And, you know, uh, it's like a self-contained series. They could maybe come up with another season, but I think it works just fine on its own was uh, Alex Garland's Devs. Oh, yeah. I've heard good things about that. I have really mixed feelings about Alex Garland in general. <laughs> you do. Um, I have a little bit. I kind of have mixed feelings with Dev. But, um, but ultimately, I feel that it works for what it is. I didn't I wasn't like awed by it, but I but I right. enjoyed it. Um, I it tried my patience a few times because I thought it was going to go in like really like uh, heavy handed, like kind of your standard network narratives okay. but it didn't it, it found ways and then it it, it it all makes sense at the end i guess for what it is so I, I enjoyed that people could look for that okay i'll check that out funny we just mentioned wong kar wai i watched i had started the first half a long time ago and i finished it off but it really isn't very good uh-huh. it is uh the grand master have not seen it yeah you know it's another Ip Man, yep uh movie but it's gorgeous it actually was nominated for best cinematography it looks incredible but after a while his sort of uh slow motion poetic fight scenes aren't enough to carry the day <laughs> right okay i mean that's the thing with uh with martial arts movies is uh the martial arts kind of have to carry the day it's it's like a musical right and it's about the songs at some point Yeah, I mean, they were good, but there was like, it was clearly he bit off way more than he could chew. And I didn't see, there's an extended version that I didn't get to see. And that's about a half an hour longer. Maybe that would have been better. Um, It also, I guess the longer version for American audiences, I think there's another Harvey uh, Scissorhands kind of deal. Okay. They they worked with him to put the narrative in a chronological order. And the original was a little bit more poetic and not. Okay. I think that would be a much better way for this film to go. So if I could see the long version sometime, maybe I'd go back to it. And have you seen any other Ip Man movies? No, I mean, there's, uh, I think that's probably why I watched this because I had been halfway through and you mentioned Ip Man. Yeah. And that is also available, I think, on Netflix. So I have it in my queue, but okay, I haven't got to it yet. <laughs> it's a movie I like in large part because of the martial arts. 
I like this guy, Donnie Yen. I've seen a bunch of his movies. He was the guy who played Ip Man? Yeah. And I do know that, of course, that was the uh, supposedly you know, trainer of Bruce Lee. Um, yep. I didn't see that, but what I did see on uh, <laughs> Amazon Prime on the Rift Tracks <laughs> was No Retreat, No Surrender, which was this uh, 80s uh, like canon-like classic where uh, these young uh, <laughs> kid is into martial arts and has to move into another town because these big bad mafia guys show up at his dad's kung fu studio Ooh. with uh, – with uh, a very uh, mysterious Jean-Claude Van Damme who ba- basically injures the guy's knee. And so he goes to Seattle and he is inspired to learn proper karate from the ghost of Bruce Lee, <laughs> which is played by Bruce Lee's stunt double who played Bruce Lee in those movies where Bruce Lee had already died and they used right. a stunt double for most of the film. It's so hilariously horrible <laughs> that at some point we called our youngest in to watch this and we just had a blast laughing hysterically. It was very, very funny. And then I also saw in Criterion this movie called, I think it's leaving this month, is Bunny Lake is Missing. Oh, I've heard that. It's an Otto Preminger movie from 1965. Okay. But here's, so here's some of the things that intrigued me about it. It features a title sequence by Saul Bass. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And it's a two, three, five film, but in black and white. Okay. So you get that super widescreen cinematography, but in black and white, which is very cool. And for some reason, and maybe this was like, you know how like there's always product placements and you get dollars. So I don't know, maybe there was a music studio that was going to like trying to promote this band. They found ways to include the rock group, the zombies. (laughs) In, okay. in the movie <laughs> and they're featured like on television screens a few times and stuff and it seems like it's just definitely was product placement to push the band um so that was interesting and then the stars of it are this actress who just uh, died last year carol lindley and Kier dulia oh wow yeah and they are this really creepy brother and sister duo living in england now she just came over uh from the states with her young daughter and the whole rap on her is that the daughter's illegitimate and of oh. course in 65 you know right it's right scandalous right. and so she drops this kid off at a private uh, you know school for the day she goes to pick her up or goes to check on her at lunch and she's not there and so now this little girl's missing but nobody has claimed to have actually seen her Okay. And so now that the authorities are involved and Lawrence Olivier plays this inspector and there's this whole mystery going on. And and, and it's so funny because I watch this in parts. After a while, you yourself can't remember whether you actually ever saw the girl. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute. Did I say like, like, so is she wow. crazy? What's going on? And right. I'm not going to give away what happens, but it is a very pulpy little noir and it definitely, if you watch a lot of noirs, you know kind of like where this is all going to go. But the style that Otto Preminger brings to the film is interesting. Have you seen uh, from around the same time Otto Preminger's uh, Skidoo? No. Okay. I've played the game Huskerdoo. Skidoo. <laughs> Skidoo. Yep. I don't know it. Okay. It's a uh, psychedelic comedy. Starring- <laughs> I'm serious. It's a psychedelic comedy directed by Otto Preminger, starring Jackie Gleason and Carol Channing. That sounds insane. 
I have a friend, uh, maybe we can get him on the show, but he is the uh, world's leading expert on this film. He be, he saw it and he became obsessed with it and he's written multiple articles about it. He's interviewed all the surviving cast members. Okay, so here's the deal. I'm, I'm going to now start a search on this skidoo yeah. and I don't know if that's available, but as soon as it is somewhere, we should watch it and then get this guy on. And then get him on the show, yes. Because Otto Preminger, man, he like one of his last movies he made in the early 70s, this is where the guy was obviously getting out of touch, was this film with Liza Minnelli called uh, something Judy Moon or something. And it's really melodramatic, sappy, and and, and bad. Uh, and it, okay. it was on, like, I think it was on Criterion when it was still part of Filmstruck and I watched it. It's a pretty te- terrible movie, but um, yeah, he so he made a lot of weird movies. He made a lot of weird movies, yeah. Now, I, this is, I guess, the last thing I'm going to mention yeah. on the program, because the last thing I've watched. Also, Amazon Prime, it just offers up lots of schlock. And strange things from the, the archives that you never knew existed. Uh, exactly. Never knew it existed. And sometimes... It's not about, like, oh, I haven't seen this movie. It's just that I look at the title or my wife looks at the title. Then we read the description and we say, let's put that on. Yeah, what the hell? There's this 1971 film. It's from a Belgian filmmaker and it's called Daughters of Darkness. And originally I thought, okay, this is going to be one of those like weird Euro kind of horror movies, but all the voices are going to be dubbed and it's just going to be one of those bizarre things. Well, it is all that except- they decided to film it in English. Oh, interesting. So you have all these international actors, but they are all uh, speaking English. And it takes place largely in Bruges. Interesting. The majority takes place in some kind of weird seaside, like magnificent hotel. Okay. (laughs) That only has one occupant, a a guy who's the hotel clerk. (laughs) This newly married couple who have this like outrageous, like early 70s European sex scene on a train. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. Stefan and his, uh, his wife, um, <laughs> Andrea. Oh, no, no, v- Valerie. Sorry. They, oh, okay. They, they end up going through like and land at this hotel and they're on the way to go to some manor to see his mother or something. He's like rich, but he's like also mysterious and he's kind of weird. Um, and then they run across like some murder that happened in Bruges where like the, the body's found, but there's no blood in the body and they get to this hotel and nobody's there. Maybe it's supposed to be like off, um, off season or something. And then at night, this mysterious, like, European car was a 1953 Bristol 403, some, like, bizarre, like, cool aerodynamic-looking, you know, uh, vehicle comes uh, pulling up, and a countess and her uh, female secretary show up. Uh And the clerk knows them, and apparently they've been coming there for years, but they never seem to get any older. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And and they only, of course, only seem to be around at night. Well, they seem to be very intrigued by this uh, newly married couple. And there's this weird phone call that the guy, Stefan, has where we finally get to meet mother. Mm-hmm. And it's some older gentleman who's like a foppish dandy. And clearly it's like maybe it's his lover and so there's okay. some homosexual overtones, and that's why he's having this very bizarre relationship with women, because he's a little sadomasochistic. 
And there's, Weird. A, and there's a time where like he gets all upset at his wife and he beats her with a whip, <laughs> like his belt. He starts whipping her. So she tries to leave, but that ruins the countess's plan. So the countess like zooms to the train station and the movie keeps going from night, day, night, day, night, day, because the countess character can only be, you know, there at night. Right. And the movie's like an hour and 40 minutes. I think we saw some special European cut of the film. Okay. And literally everything that happens probably could have happened in 20 minutes. Okay. But it's stretched out <laughs> and it gets you know, so weird because clearly like the countess and her apprentice or some kind of vampiresses. Okay. And so there's right. like a lesbian vampire angle to it. And uh, then it, it just gets so crazy so it, <laughs> and then there's a cop there's an ex-cop this old guy who's very suspicious and he's needling about so are you recommending this to our listeners i don't know i mean you'll never see it anyway <laughs> but i mean it, it's just it's it's such an example of like weird european cinema um, okay supposedly the the lead guy who plays this really creepy dude stefan he was an american actor named john carlin um he just died in january he was huh. 86 and he actually won an emmy i never watched the show cagney and lacy but apparently he was oh uh, yeah he was in it and he, and he won a, an emmy uh he had a fist fight with the director during the film because the director was some, like I said, this is a crazy Belgian filmmaker. Right. And he didn't like the way the lead actress, who is terrible in the movie, by the way, um, her name is Danielle Wumet. Okay. And she's the wife. And he got in some kind of argument over a scene and he slapped her across the face. So the guy, John Carlin, who played her husband, was so outraged that he punched he punched the director out and that caused some, uh, it caused some tension in the set for the rest of the film. I can imagine. Wow. Oh, and then there was this, you know, this, this countess was played by this, um, actress named, uh, Delphine Seyrig and okay. she was in Day of the Jackal and Discreet yes. Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Okay. She had this thick, I mean, it, her voice so leathery sounding. She sounded like she must've been smoking since she was five. And she ended up dying uh, at age 58 of lung cancer. <laughs> okay. And I was like, oh, well, that makes sense because this was like, <laughs> that was like 10 years after this movie or so. And she really sounded uh, very smoky. But uh, it, it's just, it's such a weird movie. And there's only a few actors even in it. They all had no budget. And uh, there's a lot of uh, blue light, meaning that like probably to make it look like at night, everything right. was shot with like out the filter so that like, you know, the light is just blue. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So it's like when you have a daylight film and it gets, exactly. and it gets yeah. starts to get dark, it just turns blue. So it's, that was sort of their version of day for night. <laughs> and there's like outrageous I costumes might, and I stuff. might have to check this out. I don't know if I'll, it if was I could, so good. Yeah. <laughs> it was okay. so good in the bed. We just watched it over a series of nights when we were going to sleep. <laughs> I will. I, I, I think I might have to check it out. <laughs> yeah. We just watched like the first 15 minutes. Yeah. Hilarious. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But then you might not be able to stop. <laughs> So it's Daughters of Darkness from 1971. <laughs> yes. And, and that's what I got for you. That's what those are, that's what I've seen in the past, you know, a couple of weeks since we That's left. awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it sounds like the next time we talk, we're going to we're going to talk about The Five Bloods. Yes, and maybe some other Spike Lee stuff. Yeah. And then uh, you know, on that note, the, the all the big hubbub because there's nothing else to talk about in Hollywood yeah. news is they are pushing the Oscars back to like late 
April of next year. Yes. And they're also extending the window. Oh, I didn't realize that. I don't know what, I don't know all the details, but there was like hundreds and hundreds of tweets about it. And I'm like, yeah, probably because I follow, I guess, some movie <laughs> sites. <laughs> and, and it's like, everybody's like, I'm like, nah, you know, w- w- there's bigger things to worry about than the yeah. Oscars right now. And I say this because I want you to think about this when you watch Defy Bloods. This is a problem that I feel happens now with movies is that everything is under the lens of, is it good enough to be considered for Oscars? Right. And I feel that that does a movie a disservice because just because it's Spike Lee and he got a nomination for Black Klansman, now everybody's expecting, well, you know, does that put the movie in an unfair light? It does, I think. Can't just watch it for, hey, this is like a cool, you know, Vietnam-themed adventure movie, but with some themes in it, too, because everyone's thinking, but is it good enough to get a nomination? No, I think that does, it it sets up unfair expectations for a movie. So I want you to think about it in terms of that, because I feel that this movie is, shouldn't be looked at that way. I don't think in my mind, I would have, if we didn't have that kind of cloud over it, I would have just probably enjoyed the movie. Right. And I just think that if you start thinking about, but is it a best picture film? Because I feel like there's some problems with it, but my, I have less problems with it when I think of it as just a genre movie. Right. right. Okay. So that's what I'm setting you up for. Uh, and you've already watched a half hour of yep. it. Yep. You know. Yeah. Totally enjoyed it so far. Yeah. Plus, I also want you, now that you've watched it, you know, be looking at what he does with the aspect ratios. Right. And then the, how those aspect ratios, like what was the filming behind them? Right. Um, we're okay. going to talk about that. Yeah, I'm, you, I'm very curious about you that. You can do some yeah. research afterwards so that we're on the same page, but yeah. it, it, there's some kind of cool things going on there. Okay, should we wrap up? Oh yeah, we're wrapping up. I know. <laughs> you know, but, but I don't even want to mention the time because when I edit it, it'll probably be a little less. But this is yes. going to be one of our shortest episodes in a long time, <laughs> uh, at least as far as tape. The last episode we did, I think, only came in as an hour, but we taped for an hour and a half. So you, the listener, will never know what we cut up. <laughs> we do. All right. All right, dude. Uh, hey. Uh, stuffweseen.com, uh, feedback at stuffweseen.com. We got an Instagram, we got Twitter, though, you know, we don't really, you know, we, we tweet the episode out when it is there, but but Twitter's so awful. (laughs) I hate Twitter. I I just don't spend any time on Twitter. I I don't either. I mean, I I look at some of the news things and then I just read, I'm like, ah, I gotta get out of here. It's just so awful. Yeah. It's just so awful. And then of course, uh, I expect fully expect by the next episode you will have caught up with all the harry potters we will talk about them (laughs) i can't believe you haven't seen well of course the best one i thought was the third one but clearly you thought it was one of the worst ones because you stopped watching them afterwards but no i liked the third one and then uh i I don't know i can't i I can't get my kids to watch them yeah i mean mind you that they're diminishing returns because the books uh, get so long and yeah. there's two books that they did in the movies where they did it like it was like a regular movie because you know the conventional wisdom was well you can't do a two-parter of one right. movie and then they finally did that with the last movie which is they really covered that book very well right and if they'd only just done that with the other two previous ones they might have had some interesting stuff but uh, okay those movies are very truncated compared to the books uh so i think the fourth one 
is pretty good. You could watch the Goblet okay. of Fire. I'm, I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you watch the Goblet of Fire. <laughs> Give that a go. Yeah, my kids do not have any interest in these you know, movies. I, guess what? Do you do you think my kids are, were interested in watching the original cast album Company? No, <laughs> I watch these things on my own. Are you kidding me? Do you think my wife I'm not, watched that? I'm not no. watching Harry Potter on my own. Why not? Because I don't like Harry do you, Potter. Do you know my? I mean, my wife, my kids were very little. As a matter of fact, I don't think my uh, my my littlest was even born when the last movie came out. Yeah, and we, you know, uh, at the time we were living in Arizona, my and that's where my mother in law was living, and she would watch him, and we would go see these movies. I don't think you know he didn't see any of them, but uh, right. since he was a big Harry Potter fan, my oldest a few years ago they showed a bunch of them on IMAX and we did catch a couple. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we got a couple. So he's seen a couple in the theater, but he grew up in the age afterwards where he couldn't even see them on the big screen. Right, right, right. Yeah. But anyways, uh, I am sorry for you, the listener, and Harry Potter fans that Teal is not as um, enamorous of them as uh, you all are. Um, (laughs) Please forgive us and come back and hear us again next episode. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, that's fun. Fine. <laughs>